Now, if you would turn with me in your Bibles once more to Romans, we'll be reading Romans. Our sermon text is Romans 1, uh, 16 through 17, but for the sake of context again, I think we'll begin reading, may as well begin reading at the beginning of the epistle, Romans 1, 1. If you're following along in the Bibles provided in your seats, you may find this on page 939. Page 939. The Epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 1. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As far as the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing upon it in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us, true and infallible word. And we pray, Lord, that you would use it, that the spirit would be at work within us to change us to make us more like Christ, to bolster our faith and to raise us up into heavenly places. Father, bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a joy again to be among you this morning to worship together with you. I thank you for that. I, I thank you also for, uh, for swapping uh, ministers with us this morning as your uh, previous pastor, our regional home missionary, is now preaching at Grace or at uh, Hope OPC in Grace Lake, and I'll be back there this evening. So it's a joy to uh, to enact our presbytery bonds in this way. We're very thankful for that. 
I'm very thankful today that we get to open the book of Romans once again and continue on where we left off, so to speak, last week. Last week we looked at verses 8 through 15 uh, with a a message uh, focused upon mutual encouragement and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people, the lives of God's people, to bless us. And we see here uh, how Paul also continues to encourage us and now how he starts to speak and instruct us about the gospel, about what it is and how it is indeed the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Now, Paul, of course, was a Jew. He was one with the highest, greatest pedigree. If you read Philippians chapter 3, you can go through his his, uh, religious resume And uh, even as he did that and was describing to many others who had a view of works righteousness, who thought highly of uh, checking the boxes of Jewish religiosity, thinking that that was how you were right with God, coming from the right family, observing the right things, having the right education, you name it. Paul constantly reminded us that salvation is not by what you do, where you come from, what your pedigree is on earth, or what your works righteousness is. But all that stuff is garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. Paul had the highest pedigree, so to speak. Nevertheless, he was called to serve as an apostle, a humble servant of Christ, particularly to the Gentiles. And he also had heard now of the vibrant faith of the Romans, of all people, and desired to go to Rome in order to minister to those saints there. He wasn't able to do so yet, not because he was literally chained up, shackled up with chains of iron or steel, but he was prevented from going to Rome because of the will of the Lord, who had not yet seen fit to send him there to do and to carry out that ministry. And so Paul now wrote this letter to the Romans in order to encourage them and to instruct them in the faith. And in doing so, he reminded the Romans that he is under obligation Yes, to Jew and to Gentile as a minister of the gospel and an apostle, but specifically in uh, verse 15, I believe there, verse 14, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to all types of people. That's a very important point. That the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, all types of people whether Jew or Gentile, whether rich or poor, whether living in the highest places of society or living out in the wilderness, whether wise according to the estimation of this world or foolish. The gospel is the power of God for every single one of those people. And Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. There is no other. And Jesus himself has torn down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, making both groups into one new man in him. That's what Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 2. And clearly, this very lesson is emphasized once again in our passage as we turn our attention to verses 16 and 17. But in these two little verses, Paul teaches us much more about the doctrine of salvation. Not just uh, rehearsing what he has already taught, although in many ways he does, but he teaches us even more about the glorious truth of our redemption in Jesus Christ. And it has everything to do with our union with Christ by faith, our connection to Christ by grace through faith. The instrumentality of faith is featured in these verses. 
And on that point, I'd like for us to focus on three key aspects that bear upon our faithful life. Our life in Christ, which we have, by grace, through faith. First, I'd like for us to consider the glory of God. Then secondly, the power of God. And then thirdly and finally, the righteousness of God, as, as each of those are featured here in these two little verses the glory of God, the power of God, and the righteousness of God. So first, let's, let's look at the glory of God. But before we even get into that, we should do well to speak about the gospel, more generally speaking. What is the gospel? That's an important word, one that Paul uses here. It's a key idea in these verses and in the beginning of this epistle. But there's much confusion regarding the gospel in the church today. People use that word all the time. It gets used as an adjective, I mean, of all things, over and over. Gospel this, gospel that. You can have gospel coffee, no doubt. Gospel, uh, you name it. Gospel football, I don't know. But what is gospel according to the Bible? And how is Paul using that word? Well, we don't need to make it too complicated. Gospel simply means good news. It's the good news. Put simply, it's the good news that Jesus Christ has died to save sinners and that he has been raised from the dead so that we would have life everlasting in his name. That's the gospel. But let's unpack that. You know, while the gospel has everything to do with you and your life in Christ, the gospel, more basically, is objective, not subjective. Let me explain. The gospel is not about what you do or even how you feel about it, but what Christ has done for you in history, in time and in space, according to the eternal counsel and plan of the Lord. The gospel is a doctrinal statement. It is a truth. It's also an historical fact. It is what Christ has done for all of his people in time, in space, in history. And because of that, the gospel reveals the glory of the Lord. In the gospel, in that event, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and then what that means for you who are his people by the application of the Holy Spirit, in that gospel, that good news and its proclamation, what is revealed? The power of God for salvation. The glory of the Lord is on display in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ who was crucified and raised for sinners. That's where the glory is here in this passage. That even while we do not see the word glory in these two verses, it is most certainly invoked, particularly when Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, the Jew first as well as the Gentile. Paul speaks here very clearly, of shame and of being ashamed, not just in Romans, but in many of his letters. It's it's a surprisingly important theme. You might not expect it, but for several years I've been thinking about this theme and the biblical theology of shame and, of course, the reversal of it through Christ. Paul speaks of shame and being ashamed in many places, but he's not the only one. Jesus, our Lord himself, said with his own mouth in Mark eight thirty-eight, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes 
in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's representative of many of these passages in the Gospels and in the epistles, the letters of the New Testament, where shame is invoked and described. We can read of it in Romans 6.21 or 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 2, chapter 11, 1 Peter 4, 1 John 2, you name it. It's all over from many different authors in the Bible. But what do all of these have in common? Well, these verses that speak of shame or being ashamed speak about drawing near or close to Christ and to welcoming him at his return. They encourage us to draw near to Jesus and to yearn for his return and also of Christ receiving us in glory. The one who is ashamed of Christ seeks the approval of the world and ultimately desires to be received within the world's ranks and according to its estimation, or at least not to be removed from the world, to, to have a place, to at least have some form of standing and respectability in the eyes of men rather than the eyes of, of the Lord. But the glory of the world is just that. It's worldly. It's worldly glory, which in the grand scheme of things is no glory at all. But it is a fading glory that is overshadowed and ultimately and entirely vanquished at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes in the clouds. King of kings and Lord of lords brings his consummate kingdom. When that day comes, and it is coming, do not shrink back from him. Do not cower away from him or be ashamed of him as you turn to the people of this world and say, well, I don't know him that well. Uh, Do not be ashamed of Christ or of his kingdom or of his message. Let me give you a biblical example that I think isn't directly, uh, I should put it, is not explicitly here in the text, but certainly in the biblical mindset as Paul writes about not being ashamed of the gospel. We have a clear example of this in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Adam and Eve were, of course, created in in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness, also with dominion over the creatures. And God, in Genesis chapter 2, gave them a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if they would eat of that tree, they would surely die. And this is what we often speak of in our churches as the covenant of works, the institution of the covenant of works. And that covenant was given in order to bring God's people into a higher and even more glorious life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It had a a heavenly directness, a glorious purpose. God wasn't just giving them a law to uh, have fun or to entertain himself, but he was doing so in order to benefit his people and ultimately to bring them to those heavenly heights that he so desired, the place where he reigns and rules. And this was all very good. Indeed, Genesis 2, verse 25, after the institution of the covenant of works, says that Adam and Eve were naked, and do you know the rest? And were not ashamed. They were naked and were not ashamed. But what happened? The serpent came into the garden, the one who is a liar and who has been sinning from the very beginning. And he deceived Eve. And she then gave of the fruit of the tree to Adam. 
the covenant head, the representative of all who would descend from him. He ate, and Adam and all of his people that he represents fell with him. They fell into sin. And each and every one of us is born now into an estate of sin and misery on account of that first disobedience, that first sin. And later, reading now from Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Notice that after falling into sin, Adam and Eve realized that they were naked. Now, was it the case that they just happened to figure out now that they were not wearing clothes all along? You think? You think they didn't realize that before? Were they that foolish or ignorant? That after sinning, they've started to realize, oh oh my, I don't have any clothes on. No, while they were naked in a very literal sense, that is not the, the greatest or even most basic form of nakedness in this passage, so to speak. Not only did they lack clothing, but after they fell into sin, they now also lacked original righteousness. Adam and Eve were now, after eating of that tree, sinners, rebels, They could not stand in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. And so what did they do? They hid from him. They sought to hide out of fear of judgment, out of fear of the Lord coming to them, the holy and righteous God. They were terrified. We have much, I believe, exegetical reason to believe that this this is the first, it's, it's a foretaste of final judgment. As the Lord came, he was not just strolling around in the garden, so to speak, but coming to punish. But at that moment, God certainly had every right to judge them, to judge them for their sin, to punish them even with eternal death. He promised them that, that if they ate of the tree, they would surely die. But what did the Lord do out of his grace and mercy? He chose to clothe them with animal skins, Well, where did those come from? Only from a sacrifice. And blood was shed so that Adam and Eve once more could stand in God's presence, clothed with a covering that he provided. And he gave to them a promise, the first gospel, so to speak, the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Ultimately, the the seed of the woman who would be their redeemer. The gospel is about him. And the gospel is the power of God to cover those who are naked and ashamed in sin. Clearly, the gospel is powerful, as I've mentioned already, to save all types of people. Paul says it is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Well, how then is it for the Jew first? What does that mean? Well, the Jews were the covenant people of God in the Old Testament, of course. 
And Christ was a Jew, and he came to his people, people of, that he shared the same genetics with, descendants of Abraham. But they were given also a great privilege. They received the very oracles of God, as Paul will continue to, to describe uh, in Romans. They had a great privilege, a, a great position in the history of the world as God's people. They saw firsthand, they were in the front row to see God revealing himself through various promises, types, sacrifices. The shadows of the Old Testament were on display to the people of God there in the nation of Israel. But even then, even in that time period, in the Old Testament, there was always a provision for the Gentile to become one of the people of God. You can consider such important figures such as Ruth, uh, the Moabitess, or Rahab, the Canaanite, both women who were not born according to their genetics of the family of God, but yet came to believe and were grafted in, were incorporated into the people of God and became part of the genealogy of Christ, of Messiah himself. But it's important to see that while the gospel comes to the Jew first, and even though there is a provision for the Gentile to be included as well, I believe the Bible teaches us something even more significant and important, that the Gentiles, even though they may be second in terms of historical incorporation, are not second-class citizens. Both groups have been made now into one new man. Both groups now if you have the same identity insofar as whether you're Jew or Gentile, you are saved by the one Savior, Jesus. You're redeemed by Him, and you're trusting on Him alone for your salvation. Your fundamental identity now is in Christ, and you've received a new name, Christian. Why is that? Because that is who you are, first and foremost, one who is in Christ. And that is no different at the very basic level between a Jew and a Gentile. That even though, now of course, Abraham is the father of, of the Israelites and of the Jews, even Gentiles now are children of Abraham by faith. Galatians 3.29, Romans 4.11-12. God's power of salvation extends to the entire world. And he can save any type of person. He does not need for us to prepare ourselves or to somehow pre-qualify either by what we do or by who our parents are or where we come from or where we are schooled. We all are totally depraved in need of God's grace equally. And the gospel reveals God's power to redeem and to save even dead sinners, hopeless Sinners living in darkness. That's the power of God. That by faith alone, we receive now the covering that is necessary. The covering that is nothing less than the very righteousness of God. It's our third and and our final point, the righteousness of God. Now there's a great, I should say, much ink has been spilled and used in writing about this phrase, the righteousness of God. We would be here. I am inadequate to explain all the aspects of the scholarly discussion regarding this phrase, but it's very clear, I believe, what Paul is teaching here. We are 
uh, in no way confused about the message of the gospel in this passage. The righteousness of God here in verse 17, the grammatical form of it may, may occupy the minds of, of many in the present scholarly world. But we can see that Paul was emphatic that we are saved not by our own righteousness, but by having Jesus' righteousness. Paul quotes in this passage from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that the righteous shall live by faith. Well, this righteousness is counted to us, or it is reckoned to believers, and it is received by faith. If you, if you know our catechetical instruction that accurately teaches the system of doctrine taught in Scripture, you'll know that, especially in the, in the lesson, the Shorter Catechism's instruction on the doctrine of justification. The good news of the gospel here is that God does not count sins against those who believe in Jesus Christ. And he counts Christ's righteousness to them. Such that in the the courtroom of the Lord, as he looks upon you who believe, what does he see? He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because Christ has transferred his righteousness to you and your sins have been transferred to his account. That's the good news of the gospel and what we often call imputation. The imputation of our sins to Christ, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, and he has given us his righteousness, his perfect life that he lived in our place. He satisfied every aspect of the law on our account, and grants to us his righteousness, such that when God looks upon us, he sees the perfect Savior, Jesus, who has satisfied perfect justice, and the enemy now has no claim against us. Christ has clothed us. He has clothed you in his righteousness. And therefore, the important matter, again, think of the, the scope here and the, the context of Romans, The important matter is not who you are or from where you come. But the most important question is, in whom do you believe? And that brings us to this wonderful phrase in verse 17. For in it, that is, in the gospel, I believe, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. What does it mean for God's righteousness to be revealed from faith for faith? Another perplexing phrase. But I think it's critical to remember that in the verse immediately preceding this, Paul speaks about everyone who believes. So right here, Paul has already invoked the concept of faith. It is on his mind. It is a significant feature of this passage. Everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone, to everyone who believes. That's right there, in the mix. And now he speaks about the gospel, or the righteousness of God, being revealed from faith for faith. Verse 17 teaches us the manner in which God's righteousness now is made known. How it is revealed as the good news of the gospel. 
Some translators and, and interpreters understand that all Paul is saying here is that our salvation from beginning to end is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, amen to that. That is certainly true. That's the wonderful Reformed and more basically just biblical truth that we call sola fide. That we're saved by grace through faith. That it's only by faith that we receive this righteousness of God. How are we right with God? How are sinners made right with God? It's only by receiving Christ's righteousness by faith. There's no other way to be made right with God. You cannot qualify yourself. You cannot somehow do something in order to make yourself right with God. You need to believe in Jesus. And when you believe, you receive the righteousness of Christ by grace through the instrumentality of faith. That is true. Amen. I will preach that, Lord willing, till the day I die. Yet I believe Paul is making an even further statement. He's saying something even more than that when he says that God's righteousness is revealed from faith for faith. Here I'm I'm largely following John Murray, which usually is a very safe thing to do. Righteousness is not only imputed by faith, but it is also, that is the righteousness, also comes to everyone who believes. Let me put it another way to, to, to help us understand what I think Paul is saying. The gospel indeed is the power of God to everyone who believes. But it is not only the power of God to believing Jews. See, there's a way some people might hear him say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. And some people to think, okay, salvation is by believing in Jesus. You need to believe and it's the only way you may be saved but somehow think that that only applies to a subset of humanity. Or that somehow you have to believe, but not everyone who believes is saved. Salvation is only through faith, but faith doesn't work in every case. You see? Paul is eliminating every small subcategory that people might use in order to diminish the power of God in salvation or in order somehow to hedge it, or in order somehow to qualify it, or restrict it. He says, not only is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but it's to everyone who believes, whether Jew or Gentile, and everyone who exercises saving faith, that is, faith in Christ. Everyone who receives and rests upon Christ alone for salvation. Every single one who does that, by God's grace, will indeed be saved. It's not possible to exercise a true faith in Jesus Christ and then not be saved, no matter who you are, whether you're a Jew or Gentile or even among the Gentiles, whether you are a Greek or a barbarian. If you believe in Jesus, you may be saved. You will be saved by the power of God. This salvation is revealed by faith, but it is also to the saving faith of every single person who exercises it. Well, how then should we live in light of these glorious truths, in light of this power of God that has been revealed to us, this righteousness of God revealed unto us? Brothers and sisters, do not shrink back from Christ. All started, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I think there are a lot of reasons, if you are looking to this world where you would be ashamed of the gospel, 
More and more we are seeing the antithesis at work in our culture, and it will only increase. This is to be expected. Ultimately, we are not citizens of this world. We're pilgrims. We don't belong here in the sense that we have a place to which we're going. Our homeland is above. We ultimately rest in and with Jesus Christ, and we yearn for his return so that we would enter into the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdoms of this world do not abide by those things. They do not see reality that way. They reject Christ. Indeed, in their hearts, they ultimately hate Christ. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. But even as I say that, I I recognize it's going to be harder and harder to live in this world as those who revel in the gospel, who glory in the gospel of Christ. You will receive ridicule. You will be made fun of. You will be removed and excised from various groups. or You will be disqualified from certain positions in society, whatever they may be. That is to be expected. No matter what pain or persecution or suffering may come upon you, count it all joy if that suffering is experienced in an account of Christ. God's enemies are only merely to, uh, to fill up what is lacking. They only want to lash out more on Jesus. They put him to death. And he's raised and ascended on high, but they still aren't done persecuting his body. But do not be ashamed of the gospel in order somehow to to spare yourself from suffering or to spare yourself from pain in this life? Why not? Because the gospel, which is about Jesus Christ, is, is the glory of God. He is, Christ is, your one true hope. Don't be ashamed of that. He's your life. He's everything. Why would you be ashamed of the very person who saved you, who's redeemed you, who protects you. Your king, he comes back to rule and defend. Do not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the very thing that gives you life and purpose. The gospel is the good news of Christ crucified and raised for sinners. And that is your only hope. And if you're ashamed of it, you're distancing yourself from your only possible life source. Brothers and sisters, Do not be ashamed of him, for he indeed has brought us the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ. Receive and rest upon him alone. Believe on him alone for your salvation. You will be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But we ask also for strength, Lord, that we may cling to him in faith, even in the the midst of adversity that we would always look to him, protect us, Lord. We pray, too, that you would give to us assurance of faith, an assurance of salvation through that faith which is wrought by Jesus, knowing that it's not our exercise of faith that saves us, but it's Jesus who saves us. We cling to him by faith, and it's the Spirit of God who is working, who has even brought that faith about. Father, we are weak, and many of us, we struggle with that type of assurance, but we pray that you would give it to us, that you would work in us your, your glories, Father, that we would, we would always see Christ and behold him and, and have a peace that passes all understanding as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.